0: What's really going on there is that the original out of body experience hits on repeat over and over and over. This is why finding one's way back into the body is so important for survivors.
1: Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. Today, we will hear from author Stephen Mills, who received the 2022 National Jewish Book Awards for Chosen, a memoir of stolen boyhood. He shares the remarkable story of a boy who lost his innocence and his childhood, but fought back and found himself again. His story highlights just how important it is for survivors to work with one's nervous system to heal. Trigger warning for listeners, please be advised that this show will cover difficult topics including child sexual abuse, suicide, and self-harm. Use your discretion when listening, and please take care of yourselves. Resources are, as always, in the show notes. And with that, let's settle into Stephen's story with an open heart. Hi, Stephen. Hi. I am so grateful that you wrote this book, Chosen. I think it's going to change lives. And hopefully this conversation will also make a difference in people's lives. I wanted to just mention that Chosen is an incredibly readable book. reads like a film. I've said that before. So I highly encourage anyone who has not read this book to go out and purchase it ASAP. First, thanks so much for having
0: me here. And for what you said about the book's readability, because this is a really tough topic, and I'd probably safe in saying most people push it away, Mm -hmm. and people aren't rushing out to read books about child sex abuse, I get it. And part of my goal in writing this book was to write something that would really pull you in from the top, like getting on a ride and not stopping till you get off. So it's been incredibly gratifying how many people tell me that they read it in a day or two days. It is very stripped down, plot driven, as you say, and I'll believe you, mm-hmm. very readable. Because mm-hmm. when you write something, you never really get to read it. But that was my goal. So it's always wonderful to hear that it's a very readable book. And in terms of my story, I had a few goals in Writing that I wanted to get across because I think they're just huge gaps in the public's understanding of child sex abuse. And one of them is the child's experience of it. There are many wonderful books and memoirs written about that experience of children, but almost always it's filtered through the adult's view. So there's a fair amount of armchair looking back at and reflecting on and talking about trauma and I didn't want to do that. I really Mm. wanted the unvarnished childhood experience because when I was 13, I certainly didn't know what the word trauma was. I didn't know there was anything called sexual abuse. So I wanted to really convey what it feels like for the kid with no hindsight because of course today, my view of all that is utterly different and I wanted kids world to come through.
1: I remember you touched on this when we had the Darkness to Light Honest conversations Mm -hmm. that we did about grooming. Mm -hmm. You asked to show the viewers a photo of you as a child at the age when this happened to Mm -hmm. you. And I thought that was so important because it's almost like adults' brains are lazy and we aren't going to do all the work to try to construct an image of you as a child, We just see you from the book flap and you need to be confronted with what the child looked like then. And then I think the viewer or the reader can feel it more viscerally. Yeah. Right. I love that attention that you paid to that. And it really shows it's also the power of storytelling. Yes. Right. And going back to your superpower, I just want to put a finer point on it, which is No one wants to talk about child sexual abuse, like you said. So you have to cut through to the heart, right? Yes. And it's through art. And I hate to say this word, entertainment. No one wants to be lectured about it. No one wants to just listen to facts and figures. You want to be affected in your heart. You want to see the boy that this happened to. Then it's real. Yeah. That's definitely
0: the door in for people because we all want to hear stories. (laughs) And my story as I've said before, was nothing if not ordinary in terms of its origins, who I was and what my family was, and just the sort of prototypical middle-class Jewish family. And so the entry point is very accessible. So that was goal number one for me. And number two, and by the way, it's not as if I had a laundry list of goals. (laughs) These became clear to me as I was writing, because I had no clue when I started what the structure was or anything. But it turned out that The second thing that felt important to me was conveying the aftershocks of childhood sexual abuse, which is another area I think there's just not enough discussion and education about it. So people don't realize that 10 minutes of sexual abuse can resonate for the rest of one's life in very profound ways. I of course spend a lot of time talking to a lot of survivors and you really gain an appreciation for how devastating it is to the human nervous system to be sexually violated as a child. It's like the big bang and it just reverberates forever. And I wanted to share that so that people get it and why people don't disclose abuse on average until age 52. And then the third part is just how challenging it is to stop a child predator and get justice of any kind, whether criminal or civil. That's another area where we have so far to go in changing the systems around it and just public awareness around it and the laws and the culture so that we can support victims in the way they deserve support and build and reform a justice system so that it's really geared toward delivering justice for those who are assaulted as kids. So Those are big picture, the three things I was almost unconsciously setting out to do, but it became clear in the course of writing. In part one of the story, what opens with my father dying, which happened when I was just about to turn five, he had multiple sclerosis from the time I was born and disabled in a wheelchair. And that's the prologue of the book is losing my father. And that created this rather large void, of course. For me, psychologically, I was very, very attached to him. I have very clear, strong memories of him, very physically attached to him. And when I turned 13, right after my bar mitzvah, I went back to summer camp for the third time. My mother had remarried, so I had a stepfather, but I really never grew attached to him. That's how profound my attachment was to my birth father. And because the family was in a state of denial about his death, and it's not something my mother ever talked to me about, much less grieved with me or modeled how to grieve. Mm-hmm. I was very much still attached to him, and that left me really vulnerable in a certain kind of way to this very esteemed social worker named Dan Farinella, who turned out to be a pedophile and child predator. He was the director of the summer camp. I'd gone to for three years. He had begun there when I was 12, and this is the summer I turned 13, and suddenly showed this very intense interest in me, as if he wanted to be my friend, which was like God telling you he wanted to be your friend, or maybe the school principal is a closer analogy, when was oh my God, this guy thinks I'm special and he's paying attention to me and he wants to hear about me and he wants to talk about my problems and what's going on with my family. And in retrospect, of course, the classic arc of grooming in terms of getting me alone, away from my bunk, giving me gifts, and just showering me with lots of attention. A lot of it psychological and in a way almost acting as a therapist. And of course, he was trained that way. He was a social worker. And that's how that summer went. And then it was later that fall when he got my mother's permission to take me up to camp, just him and me, where he sexually assaulted me in the infirmary in the middle of the woods, a 100 miles from home. And that, of course, was the ground zero for Everything that followed emotionally, psychologically and traumatically. And so part one follows just how the out of body experience that was a near death experience. I sometimes describe it as because I did leave my body and in retrospect understand that my nervous system thought he was trying to kill me because I had no idea that an adult male would sexually attack a kid. That wasn't in my realm. So my lizard brain experienced it as he's going to kill me. And so I left my body. I watched it from above. That leaving of the body, what we call dissociation, became a lifelong phenomenon for me. That's something to this day I can still, when triggered, experience that out-of-body feeling and the panic of leaving my body. Part one traces how that manifests in my life, my going back to school Monday morning and immediately grasping, though not being able to articulate or even tell myself, but knowing that I was no longer in my life and life would never be the same again. And by not being in my life, it suddenly felt like I was looking at it through glass or from the outside. I didn't feel any emotional anything. I felt dead and couldn't understand why I couldn't partake in the things I love doing, playing with my friends and sports and all those things. And the girl I had been enamored with in my seventh grade class the week before, and that suddenly seemed like just Mount Everest. It was so distant and untouchable somehow. Those Mm -hmm. feelings that had felt so innocent just a few days earlier. Hmm. And that's ages 13 to 15, which was when I was sexually abused. And then in part two, living with this terrible secret and having shared it with no one and trying to make my way in the world. And for me, my attempt to get by and convince myself and others that beneath all this shame and self-loathing and shock Hmm. that I was okay was by succeeding in school. I did everything in my power to be academically successful. And I was because it felt like life and death because why would anyone like me or think well of me unless I was an A plus student after college, I applied and was accepted to a PhD economics program in Wisconsin, the university of Wisconsin. And right before I entered, I was 22, 23 years old. I made the discovery that Dan Fernello, who had abused me for two years was abusing other boys in a different Jewish summer camp in another state. And that really just cracked open everything that I had been carrying quite silently and forced me to suddenly grasp what had happened to me because Mm -hmm. it had never occurred to me this was something that had happened to another kid. And this too is very common Mm -hmm. with kids when they're sexually abused, thinking you're the only one because Mm -hmm. a lot of the behavior of a perpetrator is to isolate you. And the Mm -hmm. isolation is one of the most debilitating parts Mm -hmm. of it. Feeling Mm -hmm. alone with the horrendous experience and trying to keep it from the world. I suddenly got it. This happened to me. It's happening to these other kids. It must Mm -hmm. have happened to many other boys. Mm -hmm. The extent of it. And the nightmare of it went from being subterranean out it, out into the open. And with it came this whole maelstrom of emotions that I had, of course, pushed down and stuffed down back in seventh grade in order to function. And this is what we do. This is what our nature equips us to survive by... Bessel van der Kolk says the body keeps the score. We mm-hmm. keep it in our body, but the body doesn't share the reality with the mind because if it shared it with the conscious mind, our heads would explode. Mm-hmm. You have no way of processing that kind of trauma, especially at that age. And so we carry it in our bodies mm-hmm. and it debilitates us emotionally, psychologically, and often physically. It did debilitate me physically. And so when I was when I realized what was happening, All of that that I had kept locked down unconsciously suddenly poured forth. And I did confront him and try to stop him unsuccessfully. I also got my first glimpse into how people surrounding a perpetrator enable that person and enable the crime. Many of them, some intentionally, some unintentionally, but there's a collective complicity almost Mm -hmm. always. I then really went off the rails because I had no way of processing all of this stuff, the memory, the pain, the anguish, the fear, the shame, all of it, that was all coming out all at once in a Mm -hmm. flood. And so that part of the book is called flight for obvious Mm -hmm. reasons. And I did my very best through drugs and sex and suicide attempts to make the pain go away. And it didn't. Mm -hmm. And by just, really crazy luck plus having a physical and mental breakdown, I found my way to therapy in my late 20s, early 30s. And that's part three, which is called Reckoning. And the Reckoning was both with my own experience and with the perpetrator and with the criminal justice system. And it's really the arc of that story of trying to come to terms with this In my own life, trying once more, this time better equipped, to try to stop him because at this point he had moved on to yet another state and yet another Jewish summer camp where he was abusing boys. And the story continues today because I have filed suit under the Child Victims Act in New York and trying to hold accountable the institutions that employed him in New York when I was a kid, when I was abused, because they were the first links in this Chain of silence and complicity that shielded him for three decades. I think that's super important for the sake of kids today. I really believe that unless institutions face up to and address historic cases of abuse, they're just completely ill equipped to confront whatever happens this summer.
1: Two times you've mentioned the nervous system. You said it was devastating to the human nervous system. This goes back to Bessel van der Kolk's work, among others. I think that's also hard for people to understand. I guess because of the tradition of therapy comes from Freud and talking. Yes. When in fact you can talk all you want for decades. And if you don't address the nervous system, you're not actually healing. That's right. Right? It's wonderful that you clearly have. And it's ongoing. It's ongoing as (laughs) everything is, right? Healing is a journey. It's all a practice. You did this great job of meeting your goal of writing and showing the child's experience in the first part of your book. You acknowledge it was devastating to your nervous system. You couldn't actually process it because like you said, your head would explode, but your body was changed. Your nervous system was changed. When you wrote about it, that must have been so hard to go back there. What was that like for you?
0: It was both, it was heaven and hell. The heaven part was, I had actually tried for 30 years to write this book. And going back to 1987, after my last Mm -hmm. meeting with the FBI, which folks can read about in the book, I always ran into psychological roadblocks. I hit a certain point in trying to tell the story where I came up against things that were either too scary, too triggering, and it was material that I hadn't yet really worked through Mm. and found a way into. Mm. And so when people ask me about writing these types of stories, I always say, you're not in charge. (laughs) Forget about deadlines and schedules in Mm. terms of writing. There is an inner wisdom at work, and it can Mm. take a year, it can take in my case, over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And because you really are opening, you're not just opening, you're diving into Pandora's box. That journey is not in your control. Again, the unconscious is going to guide you to what feels safe and Mm -hmm. send you running the other way when it's not. And a couple of times I wound up in the ER in the 90s, early 2000s, when I went or I shouldn't have gone. Too much too of, fast. Yeah, too much too fast. Yeah. And I had a lot of somatic mm-hmm. therapy mm-hmm. yet to come, which helped me. And so back to what I was saying, the heaven part of it was for the first time in decades, the writing came fluidly mm-hmm. and without any block, which yeah. felt miraculous. Yeah. And so, I mean, in retrospect, because I was ready, I had digested this over so long and so many decades and through so many modalities of taking care of my mind and my body and being in a healthy, intimate relationship with my partner and my wife that I was ready. And the hellish part was having to relive all of it, but that was okay because mm-hmm. it doesn't have the power over me that it used to. That's the big difference. Oh. And so I was in this container of retelling and writing Mm. that felt fundamentally safe. Mm. And within that, I could retell the story. And I think probably as any creative person knows, Mm. whether actor or writer or dancer, you can go to those places and Mm. inhabit them without destroying yourself. That's the journey, right?
1: I have to give you kudos. You put in the work to get to a point where you had metabolized
0: everything. That's a perfect way of saying it. That is, I believe, what happened. It got metabolized. But believe me, even this attempt to write the book began in 2018, and I finished it in about 18 months. But a year before that, I would be waking up in the middle of the night saying, oh my God, this is never going to happen. I'm not getting any younger. It really made me feel despairing. It felt super important to me to share the story because there weren't any others like it in the male survivor realm. There's a couple of wonderful memoirs. They're 20 years old now. One by Richard Hoffman called Half the House and one by fantastic book by Marty Moran called The Tricky Part. But it's very telling that with all these fantastic women's memoirs of childhood sexual abuse, there have been no recent ones that have gotten any kind of attention, you know, or distribution from men, that was my cross to bear for some reason.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And Stephen, I love how you said there was an inner wisdom at work.
0: That's why when people tell me how much they love the book, I really take no credit for it. If I had succeeded at it in all those times, I was really trying, maybe, but I got to the point with this where it's like when I stopped trying, it happened. I'm a writer by trade and profession. I've never had this experience before of feeling like I was just channeling something. Wow. I had somehow prepared myself to be open enough to receive the story and the way it needed to be told. And that's what happened. So there wasn't a lot of self there. Someone opened a faucet in my brain and it just happened. And I couldn't turn it off. That was a little scary. really couldn't turn it off.
1: You did all the work to get you ready to be a vessel. And they are your words. So I appreciate your humility, but they are your words that you put pen to paper. You mentioned the near-death experience that when it happened, you were no longer in your life. You felt dead. You couldn't find joy in the things that you used to. I think it's so important for people to know how deeply that changes someone. I've heard this from other survivors that there's a before and there's an after absolutely there's a line in the sand that's drawn right absolutely and i think the way that mainstream culture has understood it and spoken about it is to say it was the loss of innocence Yeah,
0: that sounds almost romantic
1: right and that's very Mm -hmm. much from an adult perspective Mm -hmm. right yeah there's
0: a the loss of innocence doesn't begin to describe how jolting to one sense of reality, the whole mm. thing is. And I think I mentioned this at the darkness to light mm. webinar about how it felt to me more like horror movie or sci-fi. And as an adult,
1: mm. you have to
0: imagine lying in your bed and being abducted by aliens mm. and being sexually assaulted because that's how fictional it felt. That's how otherworldly. And impossible it felt. So the before and after is that everything I thought I understood about Mm -hmm. my life and myself and the world and this camp director who had become supposedly my very good friend and trusted Mm -hmm. protector, everything I thought I knew went poof. And suddenly there's this man assaulting me, hurting me, harming me. And utterly alone and so deeply ashamed that there's no way I'm going to tell anyone, much less my family. Yeah. So the world goes from being a sort of predictable, reliable place to being Mm. a very scary, dangerous, lonely place. That's the before and after. And it's also the source of this hypervigilance that many survivors have of Mm -hmm. Always looking around the next corner. And by next corner, I mean literally, Mm -hmm. I mean, most male survivors I know after they're assaulted as kids spend the rest of their lives scanning the landscape around them, Mm -hmm. looking for attackers. And I'm talking about guys in their fifties and sixties who I talk to still do it. Right. And that's just one small example of what Mm -hmm. it means to be hypervigilant, but we're hypervigilant in every aspect of our lives because you have this feeling or belief or hope. If mm-hmm. I could just see it coming, mm-hmm. I'll stop it because we didn't see it coming. And how could you? Right. Right. So we're, we spend the rest of our lives compensating and think we're going to, oh, yeah, that's not going to happen again. I'm going to, I'm going to see it coming.
1: And I heard you touch on this inability to trust your reality anymore because you thought you knew what was going on. And then the way you describe the movie scene is so perfect. The grasp of
0: reality and the sense of reality Mm. really dissolves. This became a big problem for me in my 20s when I would be in an almost constant state of some kind of mind dissolution because what came up Mm. when suddenly the floodgates opened and I began experiencing what had happened to me, something that I had kept locked down. At that point, it was only a decade. But, of course, it was half my life Mm -hmm. at that point. What's really going on there is that the original out-of-body experience hits on repeat over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And so the sense of being in the body is gone. This is why finding one's way back into the body is so important for survivors. And it's why Vandercrook says finding safety in the body is job number one for victims. And I know for me that was true. But I didn't have the benefit of his book or even Mm -hmm. therapists working in that vein. I went through therapy in the 80s when I was still talking therapy. I Mm. then in the 90s discovered somatic therapy Mm. and have done various forms of it ever since. But I had to find my own way to that. Honestly, even when I wrote the book in 2018, Mm. I had never been through trauma-informed therapy. And my healing journey preceded all of that. And so in one way, I look at that as a real advantage because I wasn't bringing any preconceptions or Mm -hmm. jargon to my experience. It was just the experience. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really want to know about how experts viewed this Mm because I knew my experience would either speak for itself or it wouldn't, which is one of the reasons you won't find any of that language in the book. I mean, maybe I mentioned trauma in the last chapter. But finding the way back into a sense of safety in the body is really what the journey is. And But, of course, mm-hmm. you don't understand that until you first understand the child's experience of what catapults you out of the body. Because if so the body is the scariest place in the world for you to be, that is a rough spot to be in because that's where it all starts, right?
1: Absolutely. And the word that came to mind as you were discussing the near-death experience, was that you were disembodied from that experience. Yeah.
0: In the second part of the book, I introduced this zombie metaphor Mm -hmm. because in my 20s, I very much felt and was aware that I felt Mm -hmm. like a zombie. I was going through the motions of my life, Mm -hmm. first in grad school, then I dropped out, and then after grad school, when I was engaging in really extreme self-destructive behavior, having no understanding why, and knowing that it felt as if I were just this sack of flesh and someone else was pulling the levers and controlling my behavior and making me do these things, which were either going to land me in jail or dead for the life of me. Couldn't understand why that feeling of being both alive yet dead is a very common experience for survivors. Everyone's got their own path mm-hmm. to trying to get back inside their body, back inside their life, mm-hmm. and having a sense of agency over life. And That's another thing that's really hard mm-hmm. to convey to someone who hasn't been mm-hmm. sexually assaulted as a kid and even as an adult. Mm-hmm. But we take that sense of autonomy and agency over our bodies and our lives and our choices for granted, or Mm -hmm. most of us do from what I can gather talking to people, Mm -hmm. this is my body and I want (laughs) to do this thing, so I'm going to go do it. That's a very fragile sense of self Mm. that rests upon this sense of safety in the body. You don't realize it until it's gone. So once it's gone, then suddenly you're like 200 yards offshore thrashing around trying to figure out how do I get back there? Because there's it's there's no roadmap for going back. And it's a very surreal experience to feel that you have no say in your own life and no sense of, I'm directing my own life.
1: Those of us who work in this field know that when we're looking at, say, hundreds of homeless people that we pass, people who are clearly trying to numb something, we know that they are in a situation like you have just described. And it helps to have compassion. You don't just wake up and decide to do that. And it brings to mind that excellent book called What Happened to You by Bruce Perry. And it's simple, right? The idea is that instead of asking people what's wrong with you, just asking people, especially children, what happened to you. And often there's a reason for this destructive behavior. Right. It's a cry for help.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cry for help. As I say in the book, you can't outrun trauma. And a lot of us don't survive, which is why we call ourselves survivors. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who don't make it. And it's pretty random that I did, but Mm -hmm. it's, I know not exclusively at all, but especially with men, because in this Mm -hmm. culture, we are so culturally programmed not to feel, not Mm -hmm. to show weakness, not to ask for help, that we will try anything and everything to outrun the trauma and kill the pain. And suicide rates are sky high Mm -hmm. amongst survivors. For guys, if we do manage to survive, Mm -hmm. and it's usually in our 30s or 40s that we finally ask for help because we've run out of options Mm -hmm. and are harming ourselves and harming those around us Mm -hmm. and whatever it is, but
1: it usually takes a long time. I want to also focus us on how can parents empower themselves. Sure. Yeah.
0: I was at a huge disadvantage. Every kid's at a disadvantage against an adult, much less a professional who's trained to read and <laughs> understand and work with children the way he was. The fact that I had lost my father and that I wasn't really deeply attached to my stepfather, I was at odds with my mother, he read that immediately. And as it turned out, He had a very methodical system for screening all the 11, 12, 13-year-old boys in that camp. I found this out later when I spoke to other victims. He would take us for walks in the woods. He would winnow out the ones who he thought would be tougher. This is a terrible misconception that a child can say no. For someone like him, he understood that What was crucial was building this emotional bond of dependence with the kid and a Mm -hmm. boy like me who was looking for an adult father figure to be close to and to be protected by. And I don't think he was doing this consciously. Mm -hmm. I think most of his grooming, manipulation, his whole thing was so compulsive and so wired in that it just came to him naturally. But he had radar for the kids like me, whether fatherless or from troubled families, who really craved that kind of bond, and that's what he built. And that's why he took his time. It's not like day two he sexually abused me. He Mm -hmm. took a long time to build that bond. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in the end, that's why the betrayal is so profound, Mm -hmm. and it's why it's so tough for victims to confront the perpetrator because the fact that you realize you were sexually assaulted doesn't make the prior emotional bond go away. Mm -hmm. That was there first. Mm
1: -hmm. So you
0: have to somehow unravel the emotional connection, oftentimes a deep love for this person. I hear this all the time from survivors. I had such love for this person. Mm -hmm. And the betrayal, so his MO was building this very strong bond Mm -hmm. so that his victims would be utterly trapped and beholden and with no chance of escape. I was very much set up for that. And I think it points to a few things. One is in terms of parenting. First and foremost, it's crucial with little kids to start teaching them about their body and their body parts and their genitalia very young and that you and you alone have the right to your Mm -hmm. body and that no one else does. And if we taught this as consistently and repeatedly as we taught, teaching kids to look both ways when they cross the street, Mm -hmm. it is not a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's just part of what we teach as parents. And Mm -hmm. it's not a big deal for kids. It empowers them Mm -hmm. to know when something's right, when something's wrong, to know the boundaries and be willing to defend them. And that doesn't mean it's on the kid. The other thing is just super open communication with our kids about this issue, that there are people out there in the world who will do this and discussion about difficult topics. But at the end of the day, it's really up to youth-serving organizations mm-hmm. to have safeguards in place. Mm-hmm. And from the parenting side, it's really parents need to be asking mm-hmm. very obvious questions of camps and any youth activities. What protocols do you have in place to protect children from sexual abuse since we know it is occurring Everywhere. I mean, there's no doubt (laughs) at this point of how prevalent, given that one of four girls and one of six boys are sexually abused before 18, that this is an endemic problem. No organization, no camp, to my knowledge, has escaped it. Mm -hmm. So you need to ask before you're entrusting your kid to camp, much less a sleepaway camp, which of course is very prone to problems because you're entrusting someone to play this role of in loco parentis and Mm -hmm. act as the parent for weeks or months at a time. That is the setup for problems if you don't have strong safeguards in place. And if a organization blows you off or minimizes it or shows you what they have in place and it seems laughable, that is a huge red flag. Darkness to Light on their website has a terrific Toolkit for parents that I recommend that empowers you with questions to ask of a camp or other youth mm-hmm. activities. And mm-hmm. it's your right and responsibility as a parent to ask those tough
1: questions. Absolutely. And I can't help but bring up the fact that it's so hard for people to feel empowered. I'm talking about parents to even do that. When I talk to parents, they look at me like it's so awkward they just want to assume it's going to be fine. Yeah. It's not going to happen to my kid. I know the person who referred me to it and they said it's great so it's fine. We have all these psychological mechanisms to shield us from the reality.
0: Yeah. This is the collective fairy tale. It's all yes. going to be fine. And I can dodge this one as long as it doesn't hit my kid. Yes. And this happens to someone else at some other camp and uh, not me, not my camp. But we know that it's not just wrong, it's just incredibly dangerous for our kids because we're really leaving them so vulnerable. And if we can't confront the reality of this, then how will our kids be equipped to know the signs and know what to say and much less report? We've got these collective cultural blinders on Mm -hmm. part of it is Mm because it has to do with sex which is Mm -hmm. and this is a very puritanical culture part Mm -hmm. of it has to do with it's a fraught topic that Mm -hmm. we naturally push away Mm -hmm. and in many people's minds there's no crime worse than child sex abuse so Mm -hmm. they just can't fathom how that could be part of their reality Mm -hmm. until it is i think empowering parents is very very important for people to speak up. And the best way to protect kids is just to normalize this discussion. On the other end of it, you've got camps and youth serving organizations saying, we try, but people don't want to hear about that. They want to hear about the new arts and crafts program. That is not going to cut it.
1: And the whole thing about my kid's going to be okay. I get that. That's our primary responsibility. But I also want to say, what about just kids in general? We're adults shouldn't it be our job and our charge to protect all children? Amen. How do you find joy in your life?
0: This is a challenge. It's really a challenge. I'm working at this. I'm blessed to have a partner who we can take care for one another and go escape and go travel, which we've been doing the past couple of years Mm. and just to like hit the escape hatch and to get away from everything is just crucially important Mm. on a day-to-day basis i go bike riding and do Mm. these things but honestly for me it's really tough to escape my own mind Mm. when i'm physically present in my day-to-day world because Mm. i'm neck deep in this issue in a very different way, obviously, Mm -hmm. than I was before the book came out. Mm -hmm. But because so much of my mindscape is dominated by other survivors and advocating and all this stuff is always swirling around. And so I almost have to like get out of town to really replenish.
1: A friend just said to me that he had to put his dog down about six weeks ago and he was reading a book about grief And he said one of his big takeaways from that book was how important it is in this process of grief to actively seek out situations where you feel awe. And I love that so much, and I think that's partly what you're talking about, to feel good about the world, to connect with nature, with travel, all these things, so that you feel good to be alive, simply.
0: Absolutely, that's exactly right. It's a sense of aliveness and innocence, going back to the innocence thing we were talking about earlier. That does resonate with me because there is, when traveling, a sense Mm -hmm. of innocence and it's just whatever it is that you're experiencing fresh.
1: Do you have anything that you feel like you weren't able to say that you have a burning desire to share?
0: I hope. People read the book because so many readers have told me it was their first window into the reality of the experience of kids and adults and what that arc is mm-hmm. through a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I'm just, I'm really, at the end of the day, so happy I didn't write this in my 30s and I waited till my 60s because I appreciate very deeply now what a lifelong saga it is, and ongoing. And so I've done my best to share it, and I hope that people will dip into it and glean from it what they can, because we all know survivors. If you think you don't, (laughs) you do. It's just they haven't disclosed to you. So these are really important things to read about and know about.
1: We are talking about this figure at Darkness to Light, which is 42 million the estimated number of adult survivors of child sexual abuse. I think it's laughable when people think it's never affected me. I don't even know anyone. But to be honest, I don't hear that voice as much these days. I hear people who are like, oh, this friend just disclosed to yes. me, or mm-hmm. I know about my sister. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to say to our listeners if you are to read one book about child sexual abuse, This is absolutely the one. You take the reader into the mind and the body of a child. And then you take us through trying to cope and the road to healing and trying to seek justice, which of course you did not get. I say it's like winning the lottery with the number of kids I interview Mm -hmm. and then the number of charges that get filed It's roughly one in 10 of kids. And then the ones that actually go anywhere beyond that, it's minimal. It's a joke, frankly, and it's inexcusable, but we do what we can. You're so lucky, Stephen, that you have this talent of writing and you did it at the time that you were intended to do it. Now it's out there in the world. Thank you so much again, Stephen. It was such a pleasure and an honor as always to chat with you. And I hope you'll come back.
0: Anytime, Andrea, for you. And
1: thank you so much for all your great work in the world. Thank you so much. We're indebted. Thank you. Be well. You too. And that concludes Stephen's episode. Clearly, Stephen has a gift of writing and storytelling. He illustrates so poignantly the devastating physiological effects of child sexual abuse, as well as the urgent need for all organizations who serve and work with children to be trained in child sexual abuse prevention. The resource he mentioned for parents sending their kids to summer camp can be found in the show notes. We hope that will equip you to better protect your children. As for justice, well, that's like winning the lottery as the overwhelming majority of child sexual abuse victims don't ever get justice. But that's an episode for another time. Lastly, run. Don't walk to By Chosen. You won't be able to put it down, and you will be changed for the better. I promise. The Lionhearted is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing, Teddy Duran for music, and of course to our guest, Stephen Mills. Follow us at the Lionhearted Podcast on Instagram and subscribe to this podcast for all future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend who can relate. Lastly, I want to leave you with a question. Who in your world is Lionhearted? Let us know at the Lionhearted Podcast at gmail.com and thank you so much for listening.